Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I am Edwin Davis and joining me as always through the miracle of satellite technology is Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey, um, yeah, I'm doing good. It's a kind of bonfire nighty uh, type thing, which is a thing that baffles non-English people. Mm. Um, Guy Fawkes night and yeah, hopefully there won't be too many fireworks in the background. Um, I actually had to explain Guy Fawkes Night to um, my Spanish teacher in Bolivia. Mm. Um, and that was a really weird conversation. <laughs> yeah, just didn't get it. I mean, obviously, the broken Spanish didn't help. But like, um, even when it did, even when there was a, a Wikipedia article brought up to prove its existence. Yeah, they weren't buying it. Yeah, because with Bonfire Night, it must be it must be a, a weird logical leap to make, which is like, OK, we uh, commemorate the day when these people didn't blow up our parliament by dressing up as one of them. It's just like, uh, okay, I think, doesn't that seem like you're glorifying them? No. Uh, <laughs> mainly it's just an excuse for us all to kind of set things on fire. So yeah, maybe we are kind of protecting Guy Fawkes' legacy in that, in that regard. Yeah, it just goes to show that you can kind of obscure the original meaning of any uh, cultural event and, and kind of like tradition by just blowing shit up. And it, considering how reserved we are as a nation it does kind of feel like that's the only place we're kind of putting our violent urges is we just all put it into the one time when uh we're, we were for some reason happy that politicians didn't die whereas mm, yeah. <laughs> I think given the the events in england of the last year uh it's probably not so much the case now like you would maybe mm. you wouldn't want the whole of the house of parliament to die but you know no. for them to get like punched in the face like Rand paul was then you know that would be That'd be something. Hmm. Here's, I mean, obviously, we, this is a podcast about films, but I'm just going to posit something to you, Ed, and you mm-hmm. can kind of uh, mull it over, marinate on it maybe for the rest of the episode. But like, do you think that the fact that we celebrate Guy Fawkes Day by blowing stuff up is kind of like a sly nod to the fact that, you know, perhaps re- resetting the table politically would have been like a kind of a good idea? Do you think it's an ironic celebration? It could be. Or do you think that the powers that be installed it pretending that it was an ironic celebration so we think we're having one over on the politicians so it's kind <laughs> of like a it's it's a kind of a triple cross on their part so you just leave mm. us all muddled and that's how brexit happens <laughs> so, yeah uh, this is a complicated case said there's a lot of in and outs yeah so we'll we'll put these all up on a cork board get some string <laughs> and some coffee it's all connected we'll we'll, we'll have a, we'll have some results by next week listeners so mm. Uh, let's go on to this week's news. As with previous weeks, some of the main movie news this week revolve, uh, revolves around sexual assault scandals. Uh, in this case, re- revolving around the figures of Kevin Spacey, who uh, last week, just as we were recording last week's episode, which is why we didn't mention it at the time, uh, it was revealed that uh, the actor Anthony Rapp, who uh, people probably know best from being in the original staging of Rent and the movie version, and who is currently on Star Trek Discovery, said that he had been, that, that Kevin Spacey essentially uh, sexually harassed him when he was 14 years old, and then that spurred a bunch of other people coming forward and saying that, yeah, a, a lot, of, lot of guys in Hollywood, young gay actors, have been uh, involved in kind of 
deeply inappropriate sexual situations with Kevin Spacey. There were reports about the director, Brett Ratner. I think there were six women who came forward and said that he had sexually harassed them. And mm-hmm. there was also a report about Dustin Hoffman uh, sexually harassing a 17-year-old girl on, I think, The Death of the Salesman, I think, in the, a film we made in the, the mid-1980s. Uh, and yeah, so like, I, I don't know if, if there's much more we can add that we haven't said in previous weeks other than that we believe the victims. But I think that what's interesting about this selection of men in particular is that Ratner and Spacey do feel like more significant and powerful figures in Hollywood currently than Harvey Weinstein was, for example. Like, and like when we talked about Harvey Weinstein's story breaking, the whole thing about him was that he was this powerful figure, but who had, was kind of waning in recent years. Uh, whereas that's not really true of Ratner or Spacey, who are still able to get things made. And like Spacey, until pretty pretty much up until this week was the star of a very popular tv show which now faces an uncertain future but one that definitely doesn't involve him Mm, yeah and ratner seems to be quite an interesting one because he seems to be someone who illustrates exactly the problem with the hollywood boys club in that someone can be entirely mediocre at their job can act pretty appallingly and it be an open secret that he acts that way and continue to fall upwards. Mm. Um, Every time, you know, a movie comes out, it appears that gets shitty reviews, he can make another one. Um, And, you know, every time there's like an opportunity, it seems to fall in his lap. I, I don't know if you remember this, but who dropped out of like directing Red Dragon? Do you remember this? So like yeah. kind of a presti- prestigious film series the the Silence of the Lambs uh, kind of movies. And when they said they were going to re- remake Red Dragon, and so I think someone was attached, someone kind of relatively interesting, and then they dropped out, and then it, Brett Ratner got the job. And we're like, mm, really? And it's just like, to see someone like that who is consistently proven to be just so average at their job continually be rewarded, like I say, illustrates... Perfectly, the, the kind of the stranglehold that the boys club has on Hollywood and the fact that when you start to pull at the stitches and it all comes apart and all the behavior all seems to be connected. It like it, it feels like um, as um, Richard Linklater said at the, the premiere of Last Flag Flying earlier this week, he was like, this this is Hollywood's one true opportunity to, to clean house. And the more we kind of shake the tree, the bigger the the kind of fruit falls from it. And whilst we didn't get to talk about this last week, which I was really pleased we didn't get to talk about it, it was, you know, kind of with depressing inevitability that as, literally as soon as we clicked off the Skype call last week, it was like, oh, no, here we are. <laughs> Here's some more allegations of people. And, yeah, I, I yeah, I'm not surprised by any of this. Um, I do feel quite naive to it. Uh, like a lot of the things that have said that these are open secrets or been talked about for a long time, I've kind of genuinely heard for the first time. And yeah, it, it just doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously very depressing. All these stories keep coming out, and the the situations are always much worse than even they first appear. Like the the Kevin Spacey, Anthony Rapp thing revelation was obviously horrible, and then then in the days later, it's like oh, there's like. 
10, 15, 20, however more people coming forward. But if it's viewed as like a cleansing fire, essentially, that can come through and alter Hollywood and just have them say, okay, this is a terrible thing that has happened. We need to create an atmosphere where people feel they can come forward and they'll be believed if they, if this sort of stuff is happening. And also that people will think, Hey, maybe I shouldn't abuse my power. And, you know, and, you know, in light of like Michael Fallon resigning as defense minister in the UK, which incidentally was not a direction I expected the Harvey Weinstein revelations to take. Cause mm-hmm. I think there's a very uh, strong case to be making that he, wouldn't have resigned if the Weinstein uh, allegations hadn't created an atmosphere in which people feel like, okay, this is the moment we need to come forward and start talking about these things because Mm. like it, it feels like, okay, this is, this is painful and difficult for, for people to hear and to have their illusions shattered or to kind of like come for other people say, okay, yeah, this stuff has been happening for ages. Where, where were you all this time? It's it's better that this stuff gets out there and that we can hopefully create a better situation for people where this stuff doesn't happen again. And mm. it does feel as if, okay, maybe things are changing if people are still talking about Harvey Weinstein at this point in time and more things are coming to light. Yeah, and people seem to be acting quickly as well, like Netflix went from releasing a statement to suspending him to cancelling production ostensibly on House of Cards, which is, or they've certainly put production on hold. I didn't realise they're actually filming it right now. Mm. And, you know, all the talk of, like, killing off the character is, there's probably something to that. And, you know, that's pretty severe given the fact that how big House of Cards is for Netflix and how big a part Kevin Spacey is of that. Hmm. Yeah, it, it it certainly feels like a a much bigger move than you would expect in these sort of situations, and mm. hopefully, like like the whole the what's difference now compared to a lot of other times when you have revelations like this come out is that there are demonstrable consequences happening at a rapid clip, and mm-hmm. uh, I think that can only be considered a good thing if it's demonstrating that hey, the reason why people have done this for so long is that they could just get away with it and nothing would be done. And now saying, okay, you've been getting along, uh, you've been doing this stuff for years and years and years, so now karma is catching up to you in belated fashion and after many, many lives and careers have been irrevocably affected or ruined or destroyed. But, you know, at least it's it's coming out. Mm, absolutely. Uh, in other news, uh, a story that I certainly I was blindsided by uh, was the news that Amazon, who uh, I'm pretty sure people are familiar with, uh, are going are pursuing a production of a Lord of the Rings television series. They are going to adapt Tolkien's kind of epic trilogy of novels into uh, a television series in their attempt to create the new Game of Thrones, but by essentially taking the old Game of Thrones and doing it again. Uh, hmm. How do you, as someone who uh, I know is a huge fan of the books and, and the movies, how do you feel about the idea of of Game of Thrones being redone? You mean Lord of the Rings? I yep. see what you did there. Yeah, 
Um, this is like me. I was pointing out to me on Twitter that I said Klingons from Star Wars in our Star Trek Discovery episode mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and was uh, brought up on it as it, they thought it was funny and I had to correct them and say that was truly an accident. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't being uh, generally flippant. Um, but yes, the, the news um, that this is happening, it certainly took me by surprise. Although I, I, what immediately jumped out at me was obviously was very much into Lord of the Rings when it was coming out. And obviously there was a year between each movie and... I remember just kind of trying to absorb every like kind of morsel of news we could get about the films coming out. And and I think it was after the first one and before the second one, and it had become a success and there was interviews with the actors and everything. And, and, and John Reese davis who plays Gimli, um, said something that I kind of laughed at at the time. And he said, um, the saddest thing is about this whole affair is we've, we've made this trilogy of films and they're like really successful and everyone loves them. But I know that somewhere, some uh, in, in my lifetime, a deeply unimaginative studio will say, we're going to remake Lord of the Rings. Mm. And here we are, <laughs> less than, what is it, 2003, the last one came out? So, yes. Uh, 14 years later, we... And this is the problem. People will say, oh, we're going to adapt the books. But the problem is, is we have an iconic and kind of a good adaptation of uh, Lord of the Rings as the three films that Peter Jackson made Mm. that exists now. And and to an awful lot of people, Viggo Mortensen is, is Aragon. And, you know... Elijah Wood is is Frodo and 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 ideas that the ideas that the films came up with that aren't in the books or perhaps different to the books are now what people think of when they think of Lord of the Rings even people who have read the books so the version of Lord of the Rings that most people know is the adaptation done by Peter Jackson the world Mm. feels like that and and even if they went back to the source material it would be very hard for them to um, shake that, which is like leading on from what we said last week, might be the reason that people didn't particularly like the Stephen King version of The Shining, because mm. whilst the Shining version we have made by Stanley Kubrick is uh, a, a diversion from the book, we'll say one that Mr. King wasn't a fan of, as we mentioned, it's the iconic version of that book, um, and. Whilst I'm not 100% against it, I think television is a great medium for telling long-form stories, and I think that there's plenty of material in the Lord of the Rings books and the extra bits that they could, perhaps not falling into the Hobbit pitfalls of doing it in 150 hours of television, but um, there is stuff that they could explore in a different way. My only problem is getting an audience to go along with it who have already got a very rigid idea in their mind of what Lord of the Rings is. Yeah, yeah, that for me seems to be the problem that this version is going to really struggle to overcome because, you know, the original, the, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Peter Jackson one, the only version it was competing against was like the Ralph Bashke, um adaptations from the 70s, which weren't really that popular. Um, they were more, they were, they were kind of a curio by the time the newer movies started coming out. So they were, so Jackson really wasn't competing with any kind of, ingrained cultural memory of what a Lord of the Rings movie was going to look like. And I think the the problem that this one is going to have is that it's going to have that in everyone's mind, you know, for, like you say, for, for most of Western civilization uh, who, who have watched movies over the last 20 years, it everyone thinks of those actors in those roles, that that, that is what 
Middle Earth looks like. And mm-hmm. if you're going to try and create, like if they really wanted to create the new Game of Thrones, then really what they should be doing instead of taking what is a, could be a very costly risk of trying to adapt a much beloved and existing property would be to look for a fantasy series that does exist already that may be like reasonably popular but isn't a household name yet and trying to make that the new Game of Thrones because that was the whole thing with Game of Thrones was that A Song of Ice and Fire was a long-running and reasonably successful fantasy series when the show started but it wasn't like not everyone knew why it was and now it's household names to be a show on television and mm-hmm. that seems you know that has its own risks but that seems like a better avenue to pursue than to potentially throw hundreds of millions of dollars as is, as is the case with new television shows often and, and would definitely be the case with a big budget fantasy series at something that people could watch the first episode of and say, yeah, I kind of already liked the one that we had. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's, it's certainly greater in terms of scope and scale than anything Amazon have tried before even something like the the man in the high castle isn't you know you can at least use existing buildings to make that show you're not going to have to try and conjure up an entire new fantasy world Mm. i think it's it's we talked about this when we did a lord of the rings episode um last year i think and we talked about uh the kind of lord of the ringsation of a lot of fantasy film storytelling you see a lot of the epic sweep and the 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 kind of mass battles and things that um lord of the rings paved the way for we see copied so many times in in so many movies and i almost feel like it's just become so uh part of the the texture of that fantasy filmmaking or fantasy kind of imagery that we see on television and in films now that it's it's either gonna have to deliberately u-turn from that or just end up being a kind of hollow repeat uh, of something we've already seen done really well. Because, I mean, that's the other thing, is that for for years and years and years, for decades, Lord of the Rings was was felt to be unadaptable, right? Yeah. Like, And if you read the book, you're like, this isn't really, like, there's some cool stuff in it, but it's really not jumping off of the page, like, this is going to make a really good two-hour movie. And people forget just how good an adaptation the the films are in boiling what is an incredibly complicated plot with loads of characters um and um you know weird cultures and languages and just a narrative that diverts all over the place for you know uh, it kind of meanders around for for hundreds of pages worth of action or inaction and distill it into you know two and a half two and three quarter hours of mostly excellent filmmaking unless you're going to say well i'll tell you what i'm going to trump that um and we're going to do it with with negative vibes towards it uh and we're going to do it over 60 hours Mm. i feel like they're onto a loser um it's like i feel now almost like the lord of the rings movies are you know the kind of the millennial version of the the Godfather in the sense that like when people think of the Godfather, they don't think of Mario Puzo's slightly pulpy uh, kind of beach read. Mm. They think of Marlon Brando and Al Pacino. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, they, it's got such a strong blueprint and 
that's what makes it attractive to people who want to remake it is like oh this is a thing everyone knows so obviously people want to come and see it but then at the same time you're like oh yeah everyone knows it and they like that version of it like you're taking you're you're having uh you're taking a very very big risk in attempting to recapture that magic by either uh, or you run the risk of alienating everyone by saying okay this is going to be our entirely different take on it Mm -hmm. so it, it is kind of a it's a lose-lose situation in a way that I don't think is the case for a lot of remakes, because like, I have nothing against remakes in general, and I have nothing against the idea of saying, hey, someone's done this material already, we're going to try and do it again. But it there are, there are certain properties that are just so gargantuan in the kind of the culture that it feels like you're going to need to assemble a really crack team to make it work. Like, to contrast it against another remake that was announced in the announced in the last year uh hbo are going to do a new version of watchmen with mm-hmm. uh damon lindelof of lost in the leftovers fame uh overseeing it and to me that feels like a much better choice because the Watchmen movie isn't very good in my opinion <laughs> um uh and but there is like certainly material there to make something really really great and the the pacing of that story and the way it unfolds anyway means that it would be really well suited to a TV show and you could do a lot of interesting things with the kind of budgets that HBO play around in. So mm. that feels like one that could work really well in being given the remake treatment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm like the whole thing about Watchmen is that like the way it's structured the the book, mm. the way you read it, it's obviously a television show. Uh, it's presented in kind of twelve episodic chapters that that build to a kind of crescendo you probably shouldn't put in a PG thirteen movie, mm. um, and yeah, I mean that's that's kind of almost uh, going back and fixing your mistake, isn't it? Because uh, a movie version of that is not really what we needed, and I'm not sure what. A TV version of Lord of the Rings is going to add, given that there's so much material that was passed out of the books and the appendices um, to make a lean-ish story for the movies. Um, the adding that back in is going to be, in any way, really beneficial to to you know the world of television. I mean, obviously, people will watch it. Maybe they're trying to you know do the old. Uh, get people in for the uh, the opening weekend trick that blockbusters do. Um, they're going to say, we're doing it and we've spent all this money on it and they've just made one episode and then they haven't done any more. They just tricked everyone into getting an Amazon <laughs> prescription. Yeah, it, I guess Amazon must feel a tiny bit desperate in some regards because they're obviously a huge company, but their streaming services and their original content has not broken through in the same way that Netflix obviously have, uh, that Hulu has with something like The Handmaid's Tale, which at least is winning Emmys. Mm-hmm. Um, their their stuff, um, you know, Transparent gets very, very small viewership, but is very well liked. Same with like Red Oaks. Red Oaks doesn't do terribly well viewership-wise, but but gets really nice reviews. They they clearly want something that can really jumpstart them into the, con- the broader cultural conversation. And... Uh, Lord of the Rings is certainly a bold choice in that regard, but uh, I think time time will tell about whether or not it was a it was a good choice. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, like in a year and a half's time, we'll be sitting talking about how it was the greatest TV show of our 
of our uh, lives and um, they should probably stop trying with everything else. Mm. Or maybe we'll be saying that about Jordan Peele's remake of The Twilight Zone, which was announced this week coming to CBS All Access. Uh, that or- is a great segue, Ed. I know. <laughs> we, were, we were unsure if we were going to bring that story up, but I thought, you know what, this segues in really nicely. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, that, that was announced this week that CBS All Access, uh, which is currently behind the very, very good Star Trek Discovery, uh, which you and I have both been enjoying even more than uh, now that it's moved past its kind of awkward first two episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, check it up, check our archive for our thoughts on those. They have, uh, they've announced that they are going to reboot the, the Twilight Zone, which happens every every other decade, pretty much. You know, CBS realised that they have this iconic banner under which you can pretty much do any whatever you want because it's an anthology science fiction series so as long as you can get the scripts together you don't really need anything else to kind of make it twilight zoney and uh, it certainly feels like jordan peele who is coming off of the success of get out and uh, i'm gonna say now probably going to get an oscar nomination for it i'm gonna say it uh i think for original screenplay at least mm. uh and uh, can pretty much write his own ticket. Uh, I think he seems like a good... And, and who I think has a great love for just kind of social satire and and science fiction in general. I think he would be such a a great choice to kind of spearhead that show. And especially at a time when there are so many anthology series being made anyway that uh, it, it feels about right for like the pinnacle of the form to come back in a big way. Mm. Do you feel like uh, Black Mirror has kind of paved the way for this decision? And supplementary question, um, do you feel like Black Mirror is kind of doing the work of the Twilight Zone? Uh, I definitely think that it has paved the way, um, but like, you can also look at something like uh, like uh, American Horror Story is, has kind of been doing the anthology thing as well, but, but Black Mirror, particularly in its kind of like satire of modern technology feels like the natural heir to the twilight zone crown and i think that there is room for both to exist if twilight zone isn't just about technology i think like the original series could vary so wildly in what it was about you know some weeks it'd be sci-fi sometimes horror sometimes mystery sometimes weird goofy comedy Uh, i think there's a lot of there's a lot of rooms to manoeuvre there where they're not just kind of covering the same ground. And if they get the right writers or if they just kind of comb through the right uh, science fiction short stories, because that's something that was, was really good about the Twilight Zone as well, as they would adapt kind of classic works of science fiction and turn them into stories and expose people to those in new ways. You know, there's, there's a lot of room for it to do uh, really, really great stuff. I, I guess it just ends up falling on whether or not they get the right scripts because that's always been and if they don't do what the other series uh have done like the the one from the early 2000s which did just remake old twilight zone scripts once or twice where you're just kind of like well this was already done really really well before and your modern retelling of the monsters of your maple street doesn't really add all that much so hopefully and hopefully with someone like like jordan peele who uh, is is clearly a very sharp writer and someone who I think has the scope and ambition to do something really exciting with what could be kind of a stodgy or purely nostalgic brand. 
um, they, they've kind of made a great first choice, at least. Mm, yeah. And if we talk about risk in television, um, something like an anthology sh- show seems slightly less risky because people might be more inclined to come back if perhaps they don't like one episode. Mm. Um, I think yeah. everyone has, you know, I, I certainly had that thing about Black Mirror where I was like, well, that first season was amazing. But if I think about the first season, I, I think about the, the, the pig fucking and yeah. <laughs> you know, the other episodes I like. I don't particularly think about, um, well, I've kind of almost forgotten the episodes that, uh, that didn't work. Um, and that kind of buys you a bit more time. Whereas, two or three bad episodes in a you know scripted kind of episodic series you could easily tune out mm. and also like i think i'm pretty sure that jordan peele doesn't want to just be the the race guy obviously a lot of his comedies about race and, and get out is obviously one of the smartest movies in years about uh, about race in america but him being involved certainly means that you know that that's a direction that they could easily go and it'd be very exciting if they tried to explore social issues in the same way that the original did, because the original wasn't just, oh, like, here's a, a bunch of cool sci-fi ideas, here's um, Burgess Meredith being left alone and now his uh, glasses are broke and he can't read. You know, it wasn't just kind of, it wasn't just ironic twists. It was also about, you know, the long shadow of nazism and uh, the the effect that the holocaust had in shaping the 20th century and it was about america's terrible history of violence you know there's there's a lot of room to make a a series that is smart and rueful and and meditative if they really want to go that way Mm. and here's hoping that um by attracting um jordan peele who is someone who you say he can he can write his own ticket he can do anything uh, right now, get anything off the ground. Let's just hope that by him attaching himself to this, then we get a lot more interesting directors and writers sign on. Mm. Um, that you know ups our chances of this being something that is actually good rather than something that just sounds like a cool idea. Yeah, absolutely. So this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the big new release of of this month, uh, or certainly of this weekend in the US, but last weekend in the UK, Marvel's Thor Ragnarok. Directed by Taika Waititi, the uh, New Zealand director behind such movies as Boy, what, uh, The Hunt for the Wilder People, and What We Do in the Shadows. Uh, it's the third movie in the Thor franchise, which is very hard to say, um, <laughs> and uh, is one of the best-reviewed movies of the, the... Certainly the best-reviewed movie of that particular strand of the Marvel Universe, and one of the best of all the Marvel movies. Uh, has had tremendous success so far. The opening weekend in America earned $121 million, mm. and it also has so far earned $427 million worldwide, so it's doing okay. And, you know, it's it, we, we periodically like to kind of check in on the Marvel franchise in general, so this will, after we talk about Thor Ragnarok, we'll kind of dig it further into where the MCU stands 17 movies in. Mm. But... Uh, first off, uh, what, what, how did uh, you feel about Thor Ragnarok? Just quickly to pick up on something you just said, it is uh, being marketed over here on the TV spots as the most, uh, the best reviewed Marvel movie. Okay, um, I can believe According it. to the aggregators, um, it is, uh, as you say, fresh, if that uh, counts for anything. Um, but no, I um, loved uh, Thor Ragnarok. I My relationship with the Marvel movies has... 
um, evolved since the first time we talked about this way back in when was Avengers out? Two thousand twelve. Two thousand. Yeah, the first time we did that, and I think we our episode about Marvel in general we did in August of two thousand and fourteen, which. Grief. Doesn't seem that long ago, but then that also was they had put out seven movies in that time, so they've been <laughs> releasing them at a fair clip. It has to be said. Yeah, and I hadn't seen anywhere near most of them by that point, and I think when we 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 totted it up yesterday, I think we were just mo- both missing one each. And yeah, so I have been of the the opinion of the Marvel movies that it's it's the the kind of irreverence of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies and the the character moments from um the Avengers movies that seem I seem to like um and they kind of just let Taika Waititi go nuts with this and mm. the exciting thing is is that yeah I don't think at anyone at any point anyone stopped and thought to step in to say, I think you're taking it a bit too far here, mm. um, because it goes to some really, really strange places. And but like people said, this was the most comedic of all the of of the kind of uh, the Marvel movies. Um, but they're, they're all just kind of like pussyfooting around the fact that it's a co- he's made a straight comedy mm. that, in which the characters just happen to be superheroes. Yeah, because the 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 Marvel brand, I guess, is that it's all kind of kind of self-aware and kind of winking humour anyway. Like, none of them are dour, really. Mm-hmm. Um, they all have kind of a, a, a lightness to them. And But this is the first one where you can say, okay, this is, like, just straight up. There's laughs pretty much every other minute. And mm-hmm. there's not much... And I don't say this necessarily as a criticism. There's not much of an emotional... Of emotional stakes to it, uh, it, it it's most like if you, we're looking talking about Taika Waititi's filmography, it's most like what we do in the shadows, his vampire mockumentary, which I rewatched today uh, and still holds up as an immensely funny movie, mm-hmm. uh, where essentially it's just okay, here's a string of fantastic jokes, <laughs> mm-hmm. enjoy. There's not really you you're not really expected to care that much about the emotional arcs of the characters, and I guess. Um, Thor nods more to those in that direction with like Thor's relationship with his father who, uh, spoilers ahead, Thor's relationship with his father Odin who dies in like the second or third scene of the movie pretty much and you know his his sense of loss is is certainly something that drives the movie to a certain extent but, but it's very much a background thing and it's more something that the movie nods at every so often to say yeah this is the stuff you expect because he's sad about his dad dying and his hammer got destroyed and there's some family strife but you know it's really just a case of of Taika Waititi saying okay I'm going to have these actors just kind of play off of each other and ad lib and just kind of assemble it all uh, in the funniest way possible mm. and I always felt that Pretty much every movie could be elevated by the addition of Jeff Goldblum. Yes. And, uh, I mean, the, the film is kind of funny anyway. Mm. Um, and then when Goldblum arrives, he really just takes it up uh, a notch. And I just kind of sat watching it. And then after it kind of came out, I was thinking there must have been a point at which Taika Waititi was talking to Marvel executives and said... Right, okay, 
I've got this bit of Thor, this incredibly expensive, incredibly uh, kind of huge production that you're letting me helm. Um, when he kind of wakes up on this planet, and um, there's going to be a character that's like an obscure character from like the Marvel books, but we'll have Jeff Goldblum play him. And uh, Thor wakes up. Jeff Goldblum disintegrates his own nephew or cousin <laughs> yeah. um, with a, like a rod and turns him into jelly. Um, but it's funny. And then kind of plays uh, kind of electro jazz um, <laughs> whilst telling Thor the plot. Um, and the whole thing looks like it's happened in a kind of like alternate weird Andy Warhol's factory Roy Lichtenstein pop art explosion um but there's aliens and shit and it's all a bit kind of like big trouble in little china can i have the money please and they were like <laughs> sure why not we've got nothing to lose at this point yeah it definitely feels like in terms of the the plot the addition of aliens and the kind of the more cosmic stuff that just that feels like something of a a natural progression for the for the marvel movies because like um have you ever heard of the overton window no it's a concept in politics which essentially is about like what is considered there's a very narrow window about what's acceptable to talk about and people mm-hmm. when people talk about like when fringe ideas become accepted it's talked about like expanding the overton windows like people start talking about fringe things and eventually they become kind of common knowledge and i do feel like the overton window for the marvel franchise has been uh growing from okay Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk were both sort of grounded in the real world to Mm. an extent. Like, it was still kind of fantastical, but they made a lot of efforts to make it seem at least somewhat grounded. And they didn't leap straight to the gods and the aliens and the massive prison planets where, um, which feel like an, uh, you know, like the Quality Street tin just exploded into mm-hmm. a, a realm of colour. Uh, they didn't start with that stuff. They they gradually worked up to that stuff through, like, Guardians and everything like that. And each movie, they kind of pushed it slightly further to see, okay, how much of this stuff will the audience take And each time? And eventually you get to, to Ragnarok, which is kind of the, the, the craziest of the entire series. But for me, like, the, the really weird stuff is, like, pretty much everything Jeff Goldblum does because mm. everything he does feels like one of his bits with, that he does with Tim and Eric... <laughs> where it's like he's got these awkward pauses. There's one bit where he just doesn't finish a sentence <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. And the joke is that he just kind of looks in a kind of a funny way. Um, and also like the the fact he often appears as a hologram who's glitching a little bit, which is a very Tim and eric sort of touch. And like there's there's no reason why that sort of stuff should be in a big blockbuster, especially when you consider how careful Marvel have been in the past about ensuring a certain degree of homogeneity between all of their projects for this one does really feel as if they have taken they put a lot of faith in taika waititi to try a bunch of stuff and see how it how it shakes out and commercially and critically that has that has worked because it's a wildly successful movie that's also really really funny but it is also one of the oddest blockbusters uh in the last couple of years mm. and like i said um to start this conversation that is the best reviewed marvel movie it was also um noted that wonder woman was the best reviewed dc movie um and that actually includes the the nolan kind of dark knight movies which is a surprising fact um but what's interesting is that do you remember when patty jenkins was talked about directing wonder woman everyone was like oh yeah 
she's a big risk, what she done before that proves she can do it. And then you look at Thor Ragnarok and <laughs> the appointment of Taika Waititi and think, hmm, I can think of a reason why people are picking up on this. And that reason being? Oh, the, the world's incredibly sexist. Ah, yes. Okay. <laughs> we have it. Because yeah. uh, the idea that Taika Waititi's previous work would lead organically towards um, a, a $200 million superhero movie um, about a Norse god who throws a hammer about, you know, it seems borderline ridiculous now. But, you know, we're sitting and thinking about it, having just seen it. It appears to be the perfect match of um, director and material. That said... Um, since seeing Thor Ragnarok, I went back and rewatched uh, Age of Ultron, and I think viewed out of order, Thor is practically a different character now. Yeah, <laughs> and he was always my least favorite. I, I really didn't like the first Thor movie, and I think the uh, the second one didn't do much to change my mind. His interactions with the other Avengers helped soften him from being a very kind of portentous, overblown Shakespearean kind of parody. Um, to what we're having now, which is, you know, a laugh a minute um, um, kind of comedic character. Um, and I think we've kind of got there organically and, and I'm hoping that, that Marvel realises that this is what works, realise that Chris Hemsworth is kind of, has got, a, you know, very good comedic timing. We've seen that in stuff like the Ghostbusters movie he was in and when he's whenever he's hosted SNL, uh, he's always been really funny. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like that's something. And also the fact that the Thor character as presented in the first film, maybe, uh, there's there's not too many places for him to go. Um, mm. You can kind of, you know, scowl and say a, a line with utmost seriousness. But then when it's, you know, when you're a Norse god and it's, you know, uh, Asgard is your, your kind of playpen, it's much harder to to lighten the tone and add a bit of levity. Um so taking him out of that um was probably the best decision that um that Marvel have made. Um because there really wasn't much else you know, much more wiggle room for the character to to kind of play around in. Yeah, I mean I, I think I liked the first Thor a lot more than you did. I I thought it was pretty funny and like it had just the fact that so much of it was just fish out of water stuff really worked for me. Like mm-hmm. when he walks into the bar and he like has a drink and then he just smashes it on the ground, expecting a wench to kind of bring him some more mead and stuff like that. That mm-hmm. sort of stuff, that sort of stuff really worked me in the first movie. It did feel as if Kenneth Branagh, which is still weird to think that he directs well, the kind of movies that he makes now, he brought a it, like certain amount of that movie was him like puncturing the pomposity of Thor, but then also having to still make him very pompous, which kind of went against the humour a little bit. And the second one, which I remember very, very little of, was mm. just so self-serious. Like, even the colour palette of it was so much more drab. It fell into the DC um, kind of mould, didn't it? It was all very, yeah. like, dark grey. It was a slate film. Yeah. Uh, so that was... For me, a misfire. Although I do still think, I think like the finale when they have like all those portals to different di- uh, dimensions opening up is pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that was fairly inventive. Some of the more inventive action in the Marvel series, but this to me felt like a big improvement and like a radical shift. Like it does feel as if they're they're like playing with the dial. Okay, it's like okay, the first one was a little bit funny and a little serious. Second one 
not so funny and fairly serious. Let's try and turn it entirely the other way and just make it nothing but non-stop gags all the way through. And mm. uh, certainly for me, that's that's why I prefer this one to either of the previous two. It is just, it is a blast. It is a such a delightful, funny movie and so, so great to just sit down and watch a movie and like at two hours and 10 minutes that's like any comedy that goes more than 90 minutes you just end up a little exhausted by it but i feel it felt like they kept it funny enough all the way through and like the fresh additions of of characters like valkyrie played by tessa thompson Mm -hmm. uh who's who's great uh wonderful great addition to it very much and and i think she said this in interview in the kind of the linda hamilton sarah connor mode of just a super tough female lead who begrudgingly agrees to kind of take part in a noble cause uh you know goldblum who we previously mentioned uh tom hiddleston being allowed to be just kind of just to have fun again Mm because i feel like him being the the villain for so many movies in a row it eventually means that he can't have that much fun in this one where he's just kind of like an anti-hero who worked with thor again kind of begrudgingly uh he he kind of and and having those two play up the sparring bickering brothers angle of it all felt like a familiar but not tired take on dynamics that we're pretty well uh, familiar with at this point Mm, yeah and when you talk about dynamics where loki kind of falls into the he's either straight evil or i'm gonna be good for a bit and then stab you in the back Mm -hmm. um they kind of play around with that in in thor ragnarok where you think it's gonna go in a direction and then it kind of flips it at the last minute and yeah it it does a great job of not only um making a very entertaining movie that everyone can kind of enjoy and you know laugh their way through but an idea of giving the characters something to do like uh Kate Blanchett's villain, and, and we talked about Marvel villains before. They've always had a problem with the villains. She, I mean, she looks like she's having fun in that movie, mm. but it's uh, still at the service of the the plot and everything. Um, but um, she's a, you know a bit more memorable than say I don't know Yellow Jacket from Ant Man. Yeah, or Christopher Eccleston in the second Thor, whose character name I don't even remember. I just remember he was an elf under a lot of makeup. I don't even remember him being in it. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. I think that that was a that was a, a an area where it fell down because even when they did cut her, it did really feel as if they're going, okay, we're going to cut to this for like thirty seconds to do a bit more plot stuff, and then we're going to get back to Thor stuck on a gladiator world, uh, trying to figure out how to escape and constantly being debilitated by a shock disc in his neck. Uh, you know, it, it did really kind of feel like, okay, this is like our this this is the the vegetables part of the meal where we just kind of have to go, okay, yeah, she's got this plan. She's going to take over. She's going to take over Asgard and then she's going to use the, uh, the rainbow bridge, whatever it's called, fr- uh, frost, not frostbite. Um, by frost. By frost. Um, to uh, travel across the universe and be a conqueror, yada, yada, yada. Oh, Carl Urban's got doubts about all this sort of stuff, but he's also dressed like a space marine, <laughs> particularly mm-hmm. when he's holding two AR-15s. It, that that stuff didn't feel like it had as much of a spark of like the crazy colorful stuff happening on the the alien planet mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean whenever it gets back to asgard um yeah it kind of dragged its feet a little bit but i think marvel has got a problem 
in general, I kind of thought this yesterday whilst I was watching Age of Ultron, of the kind of third acts, because it always just becomes a pile of nameless monsters attacking and, you know, our heroes destroying a city. Yeah. Um, and I felt like whilst that was kind of what happened in Thor Ragnarok with Asgard being destroyed, it felt a bit more interesting um, the way they did it. I mean, there was at least a giant wolf in this one. Yeah, and you did also, they did kind of inject a really, really funny moment into uh, Banner dropping down <laughs> <laughs> dropping down from a spaceship gun platform thing, clearly intending to turn into Hulk on the way down, instead mm-hmm. just smashing into the Bifrost <laughs> and knocking himself unconscious, yeah. uh, which was very, very well played. Uh, and again, an example of, of Waititi taking this very established uh, concept and these characters that we know, which are, and which are always kind of associated with a certain degree of self-seriousness and saying, okay, we're going to have this one moment that really punctures it a little bit of saying, okay, sometimes your superpowers don't kick in when you would like, and you just look like an idiot and everyone kind of just stares at you bemused. Um, and also I think what was really nice about that whole sequence, like the entire final fight essentially is that it didn't suffer from the problem that I think, and then this is not a new problem. People are like a uh, uh, Tony Zhao uh, did a whole thing about this for, for every frame of painting where he did a video essay about how samey all the music is in, in Marvel movies, mm-hmm. um, not having a indistinct score and just instead saying, Hey, let's just play immigrant song in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Um, really works because you know that song like everything from the dun, 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 like as soon as that kicks in like there is no song in pop culture that more instantly says oh shit's kicking off mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's that's great you know they do it at the start of the movie when thor just destroys hundreds and hundreds of faceless monster things uh and then they do it at the end when it suddenly becomes like a team effort and there's something just uh kind of self-consciously awesome about it all it does really feel as if Taika Waititi is sitting there thinking, I can't believe I get to do this. <laughs> I can't mm. believe they're paying me money to stage all of this ridiculous stuff. Mm. And it's interesting, I don't know if you kind of saw the article that was floating around about uh, Taika Waititi um, using his platform uh, as a Indigenous director to mm. um, kind of try and leave the, the door open on a, on a, on a major film. Um, I don't know if you read it. Um, hopefully we can kind of find it and link it in the show notes. It's worth a read. But uh, it talks about how he um, would um, try and get... Because uh, the film was shot in Australia, I think. And he yep. would try and get um, kind of uh, indigenous uh, interns to shadow all the roles, on the, all the major roles on the, on the production. He would have... Um, uh, one of the local kind of Aboriginal tribes to come and do like a, a kind of a blessing before um, before the uh, the film started shooting and and kind of have the whole crew take part in it because he kind of saw that you know they were making the creating a work of art on what was their land and you know wanted it to be kind of approved and not be seen as uh, some kind of incursion. He um, a lot of the um, uh, production design comes from um, traditional Aboriginal art. There's something like uh, he uh, painted the one of the, the drop ships in in the the, the colours of the flag of the the, the kind of First Nationers, mm. and kind of little things like that 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 kind of make the film unique and and his voice, but also um, actually makes uh, inclusion 
even more important when things like that broaden the, the platform. And we talked earlier about Jordan Peele being in a, a position, a similar position um, as now what takeaway take YTT finds himself in that he is a, a kind of a director of colour who is kind of in a position where they can do anything they want now. Yeah, and it just sends a message. I, I would hope it sends a message that to Hollywood that's like, hey, diversity isn't difficult. Like, it's not difficult to cast a Valkyrie who I don't think traditionally is meant to be black with mm-hmm. a black actor. It's not difficult to hire, if you're shooting in a foreign country, to hire people from the kind of the Aboriginal peoples, people who aren't that well represented and get them in, you know, in, in roles in the movie, like Rachel House, who plays the uh, Grandmaster's assistant and who was also in uh, what we, uh, and it was also in The Hunt for the Wilder People. Um, Playing the exact same role, pretty much. More or less, yeah. yeah. Essentially playing social services from mm-hmm. uh, the Grand Budapest, uh, no, from um, Moonrise Kingdom. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's, these things are hugely important and impactful and can have a long and positive legacy for a for a country for their film industry and they require so little effort on the part of hollywood creatives and executives and you would really hope that they could look at this and say oh yeah that that thing that we could do which would be a all-around good for everyone involved is something that we could totally do with hardly any effort and taika waititi has demonstrated that like just almost incidentally and uh it's uh, it speaks very well of him just as a person that that was he had this opportunity to make a huge big budget movie and his first thought was okay how can i use this to help foster the careers of people who otherwise may not get these opportunities mhm absolutely more generally talking about marvel cuz like like we said there's 17 movies in now 17 movies in less than 10 years which is exhausting it's crazy <laughs> to think about isn't it and yeah when you look at the up upcoming like release schedule as well it just kind of gets to be a a logistical um kind of feat doesn't it to do in what in two years they're going to have had 20 movies Mm. um and what like the bond what they'll be on bond 22 25 the next one will be 25 and that was since 1962 yeah so that's crazy yeah and and to think that they've not had a flop in that regards. Like they've had ones like Ant-Man, which didn't do huge business, but didn't lose money still. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you have uh, Doctor Strange again, like movies where you're just introducing the first character and you kind of think, okay, the next one will probably be a much bigger hit. And the same with, was true of Thor. First Thor did like 180 million, which is pretty good, but not kind of great by block, modern blockbuster standards. Whereas this one will probably make at least 300 million because it's, you know, it'd have to fall off pretty drastically to not achieve that in the US. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, to have not had a flop, to have, in in, certain, in my opinion, not to have made a bad movie. There's ones that I don't like that just kind of, they just instantly fall away, like the second Thor movie. Like, I mm-hmm. have no memory of that whatsoever, but I don't remember hating it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. like, it didn't, ha- it didn't leave a bad impression on me. It just left no impression. That's That's impressive, even if, it's or maybe it's just remarkable it's just like okay yeah this is something that is is very difficult to do to make movies that are pretty consistent maybe rarely amazing uh, but also rarely bad to have essentially stumbled across a consistent formula for making movies that connect with audiences in a huge way 
to the extent that they've made, and I jotted down here, they've made uh, more than $5 billion in the US and $13 billion worldwide over the last decade uh, wow. since, since the first Iron Man. Uh, to, to have achieved that, and then also yeah, looking at what everyone else is doing and trying to copy them and completely failing uh, is, is f- really strange to see. And it, it's weird to think that you know when the first Iron Man came out and was immediately overshadowed by The Dark Knight... Mm-hmm. To think that it would be the one that, that that its legacy would be essentially a complete restructuring of the film industry in our lifetime is is a really remarkable thing to have seen happen. Mm. And the, at the same time, we would find ourselves here rolling our eyes at the idea of any more Batman. Um, yeah, and yeah, n- you know, not wanting to see anything like <laughs> gloomy and downbeat like the like the dark knight or any of the nolan batman films mm. uh, it's an interesting divergence uh, that we've taken um yeah i kind of agree with you about um the marvel films they're all you know with with a few exceptions none of them are exceptional mm. um and but it is it takes a lot of effort to make consistently watchable good films and it's very, very much worthwhile checking out that video essay that you mentioned earlier about the uh, the the music um, um, being used in Marvel films because it it makes the point that the we feel like a lot of it's kind of cut and pasted, so it kind of it doesn't stand out, and that's how I feel looking back and thinking about the 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 Marvel movies. Nothing particularly stands out either way, and that's really the the biggest drawback of the 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 series is that there's 18 17 movies and only maybe two or three stand out to me as being excellent the rest Mm. are all just good which is an all right problem to have whereas if you think about to, to bring the comparison back to james bond there's some really bad james bond movies um and the ones that stand out are yeah, probably similar in number to the the Marvel films, but there is um, the the average is being dragged down, um, shall we say? Whereas in the Marvel movies, I don't remember hating any of the Marvel movies. I didn't really go for Doctor Strange or the first two Thor movies, and the second Iron Man movie was kind of patchy, I guess. Yeah. Um, but there's stuff to enjoy in pretty much all of them, and that that takes some doing. And I think it feels like they've gone through this stage of like they've established what they're doing, right? They've mm-hmm. you know seventeen movies in, and the last three or four plus some of the ones coming up, they seem to be like, okay, we're kind of bringing this phase of the the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe to an end. We, as much as we would try, we can't get Robert Downey Jr. to play uh, Iron Man forever, and these people won't come back forever, no matter how much we pay them. So let's just try some weird stuff mm. uh, because Doctor Strange was certainly very odd in places and, and, and kind of took the action in very unusual directions, literally in, in some scenes. And we've got Black Panther coming up in which we have, you know, a $200 million Afro-futurist superhero movie, mm. um, which is something that, you know, when Iron Man came out, you wouldn't have thought, yeah, I think that's where this is going. We've got the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, which, you know, we I remember when we did a podcast and the Guardians of the Galaxy hadn't came out, and I think we said, this 
actually represents um, a risk for Marvel because you've got a property that isn't particularly well known out of all their superhero movies, uh, mm. superhero comics and things. Um, you've got a talking raccoon and a tree. Um, and you've got like a bunch of stuff that looks kind of like it might not come out. And now it seems the most bankable thing ever. Yeah, and, and also it's just it, comparing that to Thor Ragnarok, like tonally that movie feels so much closer to what the, the Marvel stuff usually is anyway. Mm-hmm. Like it takes place in a, a slightly like in a stranger world, and they have you know all these different aliens. But again, it's still a fairly kind of like jolly comedic action adventure movie. Whereas Thor Ragnarok, like the action, whilst well staged, does always feel kind of like secondary to the jokes because that's what Taika Waititi is good at. He is an incredibly kind of funny, febrile comic mind, and that's clearly what he's interested in is is being given this collection of fantastical characters and saying okay where's the joke in this collection or in this dynamic mm. um, that is that is a really fun and exciting thing to to see uh to go back to to bond i think one of the interesting things as well with the bond series is that apart from the early bond movies which basically kind of pioneered or or very much shaped the international espionage thriller in its own image. That was a series that from then onwards was always chasing trends a little bit. That's what you see with like Live and Let Die, which is trying to be something of a black exploitation movie, or mm. Casino Royale aping the Bourne, the look of the Bourne movies, um uh the the Dalton ones kind of being more kind of hard edged eighties action movies, like almost Miami Vice esque in, in places. With the Marvel movies, I think what's remarkable about them is that none of them really feel as if they've chased trends at all. Like, with the exception of The Incredible Hulk, which I watched earlier today, and which is basically a Bourne movie with a guy that turns into a monster. Mm-hmm. Like, that is everything in its tone, in its pacing, in its style. It looks so much like a Bourne movie that just happens to have a Hulk in it. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. really feel as if they have chased trends at all. Like, they very much have set the pace for what blockbusters are meant to look like over the last decade so much so that now every movie studio is flailing to try and get their own cinematic universe off off the ground i think that is is maybe the biggest change in the the three years since we last talked about marvel as a, a larger entity is that we've got to see more of how those imitators are doing and the answer is not well. <laughs> yeah, doing pretty it's, badly. I think yeah. as as well, the fact that Marvel haven't chased trends is down to the fact that they've done it in such a short period of time. Mm. Whereas Bond continually has to try and be relevant because, you know, there can be long stretches without a Bond movie. And, you know, when you bring Bond back or you do a Bond movie, if there hasn't been one for a while, you've got to be like, okay, what are people into that's changed since the last time we made one? Whereas mm. Marvel movies, we get one every, like, six weeks. And And Bond itself did try to kind of be a marvel movie in the last one inspector because there was all that stuff about oh turns out that blofeld's his adopted brother and like it all of this stuff over the previous movies it was all connected and it was all Mm -hmm. it was all one kind of big long story which is like a totally a marvel thing and like they're treating it like spectre was going to be the fucking avengers of the daniel craig era or whatever and Mm. it was just they were just fucking awful (laughs) in retrospect but it, it that was that was definitely a case where you could say okay, Bond is not setting any 
is not uh, setting any trends uh, at the moment is definitely as far as cultural barometers go uh, and in the case of a series that has survived because it's able to adapt to whatever's in vogue at the time uh, they really did try to do the the connected universe thing and and not very well um similarly the dc universe has so far got one good movie out of four mm-hmm. which is a pretty poor batting average yeah the Dark Universe has sputtered and died twice, uh, once with Dracula Untold, which they kind of retroactively said was going to be part of it, but then wasn't. And then with The Mummy, which also didn't do very well. Uh, It's just interesting now that we're in this point where you can definitely say, oh yeah, this is one of the most influential series of the last 10 years because we can see how badly everyone else is botching the same trick. Mm. What do we think is the the kind of the worst pitched shared universe idea. I think initially I recoiled in horror at the 21 Jump Street Men in Black Mm. shared universe, but um, I will never write anything to do with with 21 Jump Street. Um, I'd be a fool to do so because, you know, um, they will keep proving us wrong, no doubt. But um, there has been some really weird ones, hasn't there? Yeah, the worst one, the one that instantly... Clearly it's the worst, because it's the one that I instantly thought of, of like, oh yeah, that was a terrible idea, was when they said they were going to do a Robin Hood cinematic universe. (laughs) Yeah. Where it was going to be, we're going to have this first movie, and then the next ones are all going to be about the different Merry Men. And it's like, this is is an awful idea on every conceivable level. No one's going to go watch a fucking Tyre Friar Tuck movie. Mm. Uh, You know, it's just, it's such such a terrible idea, and such a, like executives just literally throwing dartboards and just think what what property do we own (laughs) it's just like oh robin hood's public domain we can do that maybe we can get 12 movies out of that and i think i think king arthur was probably meant to be one as well like the guy Ritchie one i think was meant to launch its own stable which uh which didn't end probably isn't going to end up happening because that movie didn't do very well Mm. um but yeah anyone where there's just Clearly, a a property exists where you have like one recognizable character, but they happen to have a team. Like mm. that's instantly just a setup for disaster. Because it's like, yeah, the whole point of this, why this work is, it's because of the dynamic between that one guy and his team. If you take away that one guy and just make it about the different members of the team, no one is going to go see those movies, and it's is just clearly a disastrous idea waiting to happen. Um, I think also those movies they're especially terrible because by their very nature they have to start with the team assembled mm-hmm. like you couldn't do like in, if you did a robin hood movie you couldn't really make it just about robin hood for the entirety he would have to meet you know maid marion would have to be in it you would have to have will scarlet show up at some point like all these people would have to be introduced and then the movie ends uh after a big fight or whatever you couldn't have just him and then suddenly like oh coming 2019 scarlet mm-hmm. you know that you like if you don't have the group dynamic you don't really have any reason to be making the movie whereas like the the thing that's genius about the, the marvel movies is like from the very beginning it was like okay we're gonna start with iron man introduce him nick fury shows up at the end then incredible hulk introduce bruce banner and his his kind of cadre of people and then like slowly start introducing different characters and kind of slowly build it up and i think the uh, patience which with which marvel and later disney have approached all of this stuff whilst probably accounting for 
why the movies don't take that many, or up until this point haven't taken that many big risks in terms of tone or direction, uh, except for the, that brief period of time when Edgar Wright was going to direct Ant-Man. Um, it, it is why they've been successful, is because they've clearly thought these things through and they've done it very methodically, whereas we saw with DC and The Man of Steel and Batman vs Superman, what happened there was that they did Man of Steel, it did okay, then they were working on a sequel to Man of Steel, and then they just kind of, the, the way the story goes is they basically decided three days before Comic-Con to say that they were going to do a Batman v Superman movie, which was why the only thing they could show the first Comic-Con was just the Batman symbol overlaid on top of the Superman symbol, because that was the extent to which the the idea existed. Mm. Uh, and then suddenly it's like, well, we've announced it. I guess we have to fucking make this terrible idea for a movie. And then they just kind of tried to retroactively turn it into an introduction for all of these characters. Mm. Uh, and like for, for whatever their flaws in terms of being unambitious or whatever, um, or an unambitious on a film to film basis, but maybe wildly unsuccessfully ambitious on a meta sense, like Marvel's approach clearly works better than just kind of trying to force interest in a team uh, ahead of where the audience actually is in their desire to see the team. Mm. I think this point is really well illustrated about how well one approach works over the other. But I don't know if you remember, we had an episode where we talked about Batman versus Superman and we both had to kind of endure it. And you mm-hmm. had to explain to me that the Flash was in it uh, in, a, <laughs> in, a, in a dream sequence that Ben Affleck was having. And I said, oh, I just thought it was a red spaceman. And like, <laughs> like, I don't really know anything about Marvel comics either, but I get everything that's happening in them mm-hmm. um, because, you know, they take the time to do it properly. And I don't walk out of there thinking, oh, I had no idea who that person was. I'll just write it off in my head as bad filmmaking as a red spaceman. Um, yeah. the, the one approach works clearly better than the others. And even when Marvel do kind of introduce like a character that is that exists already or or like they introduce it in a minor way it doesn't really matter that much if you don't get who the character is because it can usually function pretty well on its own like the introduction of hawkeye in the first four is like okay guy with a bow and arrow he's probably going to be important later on Mm -hmm. it's not really that important that he's there or not and it doesn't have a huge effect on the scene but it's a kind of a nice little easter egg and it doesn't detract too much from the movie and in this one like you don't really need to know that the Grandmaster is a pre-existing character and you don't need to know anything about the history of him. You just know he's a weird, powerful guy who's in charge of this planet and he hosts these gladiator games for his own amu- amusement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's really all you really need to know. And it, you, know, you don't have to worry too much about missing Easter eggs. They're there. Uh, and if you have an encyclopedic knowledge then you know about them but for the most part she's like okay this is a movie that works pretty well on its own you don't have to worry too much about missing details whereas yeah like batman versus superman is lousy with well it's lousy um but it's lousy (laughs) with just like extraneous stuff that unless you are reasonably stocked upon the dc law is just meaningless pomp Mm, yeah so this movie introduces valkyrie who I think is probably going to shape up to be a reasonably important character now that, you know, again, spoilers, uh, now that Asgard has been destroyed. That's another thing that I quite like about Ragnarok is it does 
it advances the story a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. I think the problem that I have, because like the whole thing with Marvel that uh, I find a little frustrating is that the meta narrative of all of this stuff kind of eventually coming together for the Infinity Wars or whatever, um, is all kind of like really incremental process towards those sort of things which don't really have much of an effect on the movie themselves and i think that's one of the reasons why thor the dark world just left so little impression on me it was just uh four thought some aliens loki pretended to die but at the end of the day uh, he talked about infinity stones but it didn't really move much along whereas this one like his home is completely destroyed and the asgardians are now kind of a refugee race who are fleeing to earth it's like okay that's a big change Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to have this group of superpowered beings who are all going to go live on this entirely new planet. And uh, that is clearly, and I think there's kind of moments of it that are kind of touching on Guardians of the Galaxy territories. So it's like, okay, this is clearly maybe sort of leading into stuff that's going to happen in Infinity Wars. Um, but, you know, it, the end of the movie is like, okay, there has been a massive change. This homeworld has been destroyed. Thor's cut his hair. It's all a big thing. Mm. Uh, he's got a new sexy look uh, <laughs> you know like the only thing that was stopping Chris Hemsworth from being the most attractive man on earth was his terrible hair and yeah. now now there's nothing that can stop him that um, fixed it yeah and so it really feels as if they've, they've moved on in kind of a big way here but uh, and the fact that Valkyrie is part of the team you know it kind of feels like similar to like Black Panther we're getting next year and Ant-Man being introduced it does really feel as if like the Marvel farm team is coming together like they're giving these people their their chance in the big in the majors in these bigger movies, and then once Robert Downey Jr. steps away from the role, either because he's too fucking expensive, mm-hmm. <laughs> because he his his uh, his salary is getting very high at the moment, or he just gets too old to play the role, and they want to start migrating to the next generation of heroes, then it does really feel as if they're laying the groundwork for whatever the phase four of the Marvel universe ends up looking like. Mm, yeah, I think um, the the big kind of sea change, uh, what well, kind of watershed uh, moment for Marvel's probably going to be the first Infinity War movie, which I remember us talking about the Avengers, the first Avengers movie, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember I was especially a doubting Thomas about it, thinking how are they going to make all these characters work in one movie? And the characters are as diverse as, like, you know, Iron Man, uh, the Hulk, like a Norse god, and a dude from World War II throws a fucking shield about. (laughs) I remember saying, you know, this isn't going to work. Well, now we're in a a situation where we've now got about 50 characters in there, including um, Doctor Strange, Talking Raccoon, Tree Man, and, you know, uh, now thousands of Asgardian refugees. Um, like, this is even bigger of a challenge, and I wonder whether or not from... Because it talked about ending this phase or whatever. They talk about the Marvel films in phases. Um, and like we say, the, the original Avengers can't go on forever. I wonder if the reaction to the first film is going to see how the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe shakes out. Like... Mm if Black Panther gets some cool business and if Captain Marvel is, is popular and, you know, will it decide who's going to stick around and, and, you know, who's, who's going to be kind of slowly phased out? Cause I mean, James Gunn said that he's doing one more guardians movie with these guys. And then he says, I might do more guardians movies, but not with these guardians. 
Mm. And I think that's what the post credit scene in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 was supposed to be about. Oh, with uh, Adam. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if that's what's going on. And with the other team led by Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, I only realised the other day that now pretty much the entire principal cast of Creed is now in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, Not Tony Bellew, the liverpudlian boxer. Yeah, which... he's the only one. Yeah. He's on his way, though, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, uh, but I think it, it it would make sense for them to start phasing in the new teams because that's what happens in the comics, you know, like characters, heroes, quote-unquote, die. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think in the, the cinematic universe it could probably prove more permanent because it's like it's not like you could kill Captain America off, whatever, and then 10 years later have him come back look exactly the same. It's like Chris Evans will age, you know, as, as horrible a force as that is to contemplate. Uh, he's not going to remain kind of super soldier good looking for forever and you know they are eventually going to have to retire these characters uh, in one way or another mm. um and and i do i i would be surprised if infinity war doesn't end in a culling of some of the characters that we've known and loved over this time just because there's no stakes if they don't die mm. you know we've had all of these movies leading up to it where you will occasionally get a character pass away but like um uh agent carter uh dying in one of the captain america movies of just from being old i think civil mm-hmm. war she passes away in um but but there haven't really been that many uh or um clark Gregg's character being killed in the first avengers and then kind of coming back um, mm-hmm. <laughs> that his death wasn't so permanent but uh if they are going to start with a new series of characters it would make sense to remove the old ones you know have a bit of a crossover so that people can get to know them but then move on to saying okay like here's all these these new people that you get to have exciting new adventures with uh and as as sad as i'm sure it will be to kind of say bye to those characters when eventually they will leave i think it makes more sense for marvel to go that route of saying okay we're just going to continue following the story as long as possible in this same timeline but with new characters than just doing like a hard reboot because Mm. then you have the problem to go back to the lord of the rings thing it's like you couldn't cast another actor as iron man at this point um you couldn't reboot it now you'd have to wait 20 years or something until like the memory has faded a little bit because Mm. uh robert downey jr has made that character too much his own and uh, people are invested in this storyline. They've they put ten years of their life into the on- ongoing storyline. They're going to want to kind of see how far it goes, and and that's kind of the the whole way that Marvel's self sustaining ecosystem has gone on is that people will they won't see every Marvel movie, but uh, enough of them will see like an Ant Man movie because they're like, okay, this is a new Marvel movie, new character. I'll see what this guy's like. You know, they'll kind of try it out and. Mm if you just kind of at a certain point just going to say and and they may do this at some point anyway but if they get to a point where like okay new iron man everything's reset then that a lot of that goodwill kind of goes away because even though you may have a certain affection for the marvel brand uh if you get rid of the actors and the 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 tone that's been previously established then you have to start from the the ground up and that presents you know that presents risks that's why the spider-man series has been such a thorn in the side of sony of like they had they established it with the three sam raimi films and then as soon as they started with a new guy uh it 
instantly made less money than any of the previous ones and then fizzled out completely. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it's that that investment wasn't there from uh, the general populace that made redoing it. It wasn't, you know, we kind of rolled our eyes at it because it seemed ridiculous that they were rebooting it five years after it had just been, well, even less than that between the Tom Holland and Andrew Garfield. Mm. Um um, and because there was no one invested in it, as much as Andrew Garfield was actually a pretty good Peter Parker, um, no one cared because the films were bad. Yeah. Um, I the one way to keep goodwill going in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to ensure that they will be making films that will be universally popular forever is, I think, to do an entire series of spin offs starring uh, Korg, is it the character that yeah. Taika Waititi actually plays, uh, the revolutionary rock monster. <laughs> um, with the uh, incredibly thick Kiwi accent, um, who you know provided many of well certainly the, the day I saw it, um, many of the uh, of the room's biggest laughs. Yeah, another day, another Doug got a very <laughs> very big laugh. Uh, him showing up and accidentally freeing Loki from his like uh, electricity induced spasms, just being like, all right. We're going, we're going on this spaceship. Do you want to come? Um, <laughs> yeah, I liked. Uh, I, I was reading a, uh, ahead of this about the, um, the like, like the backgrounds of some of the inspirations, and I liked that that character was inspired by, in uh, Waititi's words, by uh, Polynesian bouncers, and uh, the idea of like he wanted to present this image of like a a, a big muscly character who's just like incredibly kind of gentle and just wants everyone to have a, like a nice time <laughs> uh I, I really i really liked korg i i hope they bring him back and it's obviously it's probably not that much work for taika waititi to to kind of be effortlessly charming in a voiceover booth every so often um but that that i think character just speaks to how much this like 180 whatever million dollar blockbuster felt such like such a natural continuation from hunt for them for the world of people which was like cost two million dollars to make and was like a very small low-key charming kiwi uh adventure tale you know like you could see it you could clearly see yep this is totally by the same director even though he didn't write the script for ragnarok that was written by other people you could tell clearly that he had had a very strong uh, hand in shaping what the dialogue was going to be on a day-to-day basis um so much so that one of the funniest scenes between korg and thor where thor's talking about his hammer and korg just kind of like he was like ah he would uh, the hammer would go into my hand and pull me away and i'd fly and he goes oh he pulled you off <laughs> just <kind> of like, <laughs> like that is very, very reminiscent of a scene in Hunt for the World of People where uh, the the little boy is talking about like what he and Sam Neil have been getting up to in the in the forest. Oh, so those and hunters. They were the hunters and then the yeah. hunters are just think that he's talking about abusing him. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just a horrible thing in the abstract, but it is played very, very funny and has a very similar tone to that sequence. Um or just like the rhythm of when Banner the Hulk has turned back into Banner and he's talking to Thor and Thor's trying to kind of catch him up and he says to him, oh, we fought. Oh, did I win? No, I won. Mm, doesn't, doesn't sound right. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah it was. that was really funny. <laughs> yeah, it was just like such a rapid fire back and forth. It's like, yeah, this was clearly done by a guy who loves to have people just kind of like play around and make the jokes fly so fast that you just kind of miss some of them. Mm. Uh, and it was it's, it's the highest praise I can pay to Thor Ragnarok that is totally a Taika Waititi movie which is not something that you can really say 
about a lot of Marvel movies, like you can see, like the Avengers, you can say, okay, yeah, Joss Whedon definitely made this because the dialogue is quippy and it's a big team all working together and playing off of each other. But like, there's so little distinctive in a lot of the other movies that it was quite nice to see this one where the stamp of the, the director is so uh, unmistakable and also that's also one of the things that makes Black Panther look really exciting you look at that and you say yep this does not look like any of the other movies and I really do feel as if this is a movie that only Ryan Coogler could have made Uh, Mm. and hopefully that's the direction that we keep going is that the success of this maybe makes them think okay maybe we could get some distinctive directors in to kind of play around in the sandbox a little bit rather than being so restrained that they get fired days before filming starts yeah i mean this is this is uh we've had this conversation before off air that um the, the frustrating thing about um another disney-owned property star wars hiring mm. exciting directors who would put a stamp on um stories told in that universe and that sandbox um, being kind of uh, fired or you know replaced or, or having control taken off them um, in the Star Wars movies. And it feels like Marvel probably would have done that had they tried to give Taika Waititi um, the first, like, Captain America. But no, mm. they gave they gave those early movies to, to, you know, kind of people who knew their way around a blockbuster, knew, like, people like Joe Johnston, um um and then kind of who did uh, who did incredible hulk was it uh, louis leterrier yes did that and uh, you know john favreau who at that point had done some big budget movies that had made money um not as much money but you know they 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 were kind of dependable unflashy craftsmen who could do a job mm. and then as we get to film 17 um they start to start throwing out the risks um, which is easy to do when you're sitting on a what thirteen billion dollars worldwide, you say. And yeah. I think maybe that's the, the direction Star Wars is heading in eventually. In <laughs> in ten years' time, we'll be like, oh man, you know that Bosk spin-off directed by the Polish <laughs> brothers. That was weird, right? <laughs> but you know, I really enjoyed it. I'm really glad that Disney are giving these people, um, you know, you know, full scope. Yeah, I can't believe that they got Be- Bellatar out of retirement to do the Watto. <laughs> Boba Fett's Bellatar, uh, or Bellatar's <laughs> Boba Fett would be, uh, you know, I'd watch it. It'd be long. Yeah, it it kind of feels like, you know, people always talk about how they would really like to see an Obi-Wan movie that's just about him, like on Tatooine, and it's kind of like a samurai movie or whatever. That mm-hmm. seems like that could only work, only happen when they're like six or seven movies deep. Now yeah. they're currently only too deep, and they can't they can't afford to take the risks that Marvel are belatedly taking. Uh, which you know, I, I think the the reason why this kind of conservatism on the part of the the people uh, driving Star Wars irks is that you know we already know these this this world is already so well established, and these characters are well known that you kind of feel as if they should have the license to take risks. As opposed to Star uh, to Marvel, where it's like, okay, people had maybe heard the name Iron Man, but most people weren't that familiar with it, so they felt like they couldn't take too many chances. Mm-hmm. Like maybe, yeah, maybe like further down the road, we'll, we'll start to see them take risks. But I think certainly, I think in in my case, I think I expect a little bit too much of them. I think well, all the Star Wars movies make money. You know, why do something crazy as opposed to them being like, no, we literally have only just got hold of this property and we don't want to fuck it up because. 
everyone is watching us and we need to try and make this stuff work and you think okay yeah i can i can see why maybe you would hire you would fire lord and miller but i i hope that you hire them back in 10 years time for them to do something crazy mm, and hope that they've forgotten the whole thing <laughs> yeah uh you know they'll they'll have done the men in black spin-off then by then and invented their own neuralizer mm. and accidentally be like oh oh yeah sure star wars what's that we'll give it a try yeah, but don't bring Josh Trank back. We don't need a Star Wars movie made by Josh Trank or written by Max Landis. Yeah, this is there's definitely um lines in the sand that we we personally, I think everyone else, should draw and, and mm. that's one of them. Yes, absolutely. Uh okay, so we end every episode of this show with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of pop culture that we've enjoyed and which we think you might enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got for us this week? Um, I'm going to recommend a TV show um, that you actually mentioned earlier. Um, I'm going to recommend the Amazon uh, original, uh, Red Oaks, a TV show that I got on board with um, just uh, when it came out, but just on the basis of who was involved, um, because it is um, a kind of coming coming of age uh, comedy drama um, set in a uh, country club during the mid-1980s. Um, and it is put together by a veritable feast of uh, directorial and production talent. Um, uh, more specifically, uh, David Gordon Green, uh, Gregory Jacobs and Steven Soderbergh um, were the principal uh, executive producers, along with uh, Joe Ganjami, who I think uh, pronounced his name correctly, um, uh, who is one of the co-creators of the show. And the cast includes uh, Craig Roberts from uh, Submarine, um, mm-hmm. who and who's also Alex Turner from the um, Arctic Monkeys stunt double. Um, and then um, all your favourite character actors, including Richard Kind, uh, Paul Reiser, um, Jennifer Grey, Gina Gershon. And yeah, it's um, a really fun show starts off um, kind of being a bit more about the kind of rite of passage of being a teenager and kind of working a kind of le- like a lame summer job to 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 pay the bills and kind of get laid. And then it kind of, you know, gets a bit more invested in the lives of the adults as well and, and, and kind of the wider um, kind of cast of characters they bring in. Um, it... Did okay the first season, like you said earlier. No one really watched it, but they it did enough to have a second season. And then from the second season, they announced the third and final series of six episodes, which had just arrived on Amazon, which is why I'm recommending it now, because I finished it this week. Whilst this third season is truncated to six episodes, which is shorter than the previous seasons, um, it do- and it, it takes place... Um, uh, a bit of time away from the events of the previous two seasons. Um, it does act as a lovely coda um, for those characters and a, and a kind of an epilogue um, to their journeys. I would heartily recommend it um, for anyone who is a fan of interesting film directors working in television. Because um, I don't know if you saw the list of people who direct uh, Red Oaks, but mm. amongst them include David Gordon Green, who we uh, love and often talk about. Uh, Hal Hartley uh, has directed quite a few episodes, especially in the second season. Uh, Amy Heckling um, does some episodes, and Greg Araki as well uh, did a couple of episodes in uh, season two. So uh, they're always, always interesting. Um, and it's not going to be remembered as one of the greatest TV shows, especially in this era of peak television. Maybe if it was made 10 years ago, we'd be talking about it a lot more. Um, but it is um, certainly a, a excellent addition um, to Amazon's stable of TV shows and um, well worth checking out. 
especially for uh, the character of Nash, I think his name is, played by Ennis Esma, the the club tennis pro, um, who um, is one of my favourite characters on TV at the minute. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd recommend checking it out and watching it just for his performance because it's worth it alone. Cool. Yeah, I, I've been meaning to watch that for a while and everyone always says it's really, really great. So uh, I will I will endeavour to check it out, especially because, you know, it's short. So it's not like it's, <laughs> it's not a... It's not a huge investment of my time. It's not yeah. like, oh, what you really need to do is watch every episode of Cheers, which yeah. is something that people should do because that show was amazing. But yeah, it's still like 200 episodes of television. Mm. Uh, I'm going to recommend a documentary, which is currently available on the streaming service Hulu. I'm not sure how easy it is to find elsewhere, but I'm sure people can, can find it. It's called Too Funny to Fail which is a documentary about the Dana Carvey show. So um, Dana Carvey, I'm sure people, most people know, on SNL, Garth in Wayne's World, uh, kind of a, a huge comedy star coming off of his of those two projects in the mid-90s, was given his own sketch show on ABC, uh, who thought, oh, we're going to get this guy who's kind of known for doing really funny impressions of, of famous people of the day it's when we're not going to get something kind of too crazy from this guy because he's he's already kind of in his 40s he's like dana carvey is like way older than i thought because <laughs> he's kind of perennially very mm-hmm. young but he was like 15 years older than mike myers when they did uh wayne's world but that's that's beside the point um but what they ended up getting because dana carvey decided to pack his writer's room with people like stephen colbert and steve carell and louis ck and robert smigel and john glazer and charlie kaufman of all people um back before he was making puppets mm-hmm. have sex uh he because he had all these people who were these young kind of gen x-y kind of guys who were really interested in trying to do something really strange with uh, with with comedy and who were essentially getting their first big break being told they're going to work with one of their comedy heroes for a big network made a sketch show that was entirely unpalatable for mainstream <laughs> audiences uh, but was put directly behind Home Improvement one of the biggest four quadrant hits of the era so it was a show that burned very very brightly but died uh, famously uh, it lost about 6 million viewers during the opening sketch of the very first episode, which was Dana Carvey as Bill Clinton breastfeeding mm. puppies. Uh, it makes even less sense when they explain it than when I just explained it. It's a completely bizarre sketch, which absolutely was not what the Home Improvement audience wanted. And uh, unsurprisingly, it only made eight episodes and only seven of them aired. But from its ashes emerged... You know, all those people I just listed who would go on to help shape modern comedy uh, in in many ways. And also what came out of it was a lot of really funny stuff. You know, the, the what the documentary does a really good job of is selling you on the idea that, you know, the Dana Carvey show wasn't a perfect show. It was a show that did a lot of kind of bizarre things, but it did a lot of really, really funny stuff as well. And maybe if it had continued on, it would have become like a great show. Uh without reservations but you know it's, it, it argues very very well that this was a funny show that gave breaks to people who would go on to become like superstars and uh you know it ends it's, it's surprisingly touching at the end because essentially what it comes around to is that these people who all were really close because they all shared a comic sensibility you know helped each other find jobs after they were unemployed and have stayed very very close friends for the years since in some cases like Carell and Colbert are just like the best of friends 20 something years later uh and it's just a is a really 
is a kind of a treasure trove for anyone who's a fan of modern US comedy and uh, are interested in seeing uh, where some of it came from. Because I think most of, not, not to sound too much like Mark Maron, but you know, most of modern comedy people point to something like Mr. Mm-hmm. Show as as a seminal piece of work, and it is. But uh, it's nice to have a spotlight turned on something like this, which didn't make a huge impact at the time, but you know, has its tendrils going out into the world in really interesting ways. Mm, yeah, and that, that, that's been talked about a lot by people on Twitter, um, and I've kind of seen it mentioned um, and kind of excited to see it. I just kind of hope that somewhere picks it up, because a lot of the Hulu stuff kind of falls between the cracks in the UK. Um, I really hope it mm. appears on Netflix or Amazon or somewhere, um, so we can all get a, get a good look at it. And it also features, I mean, I'll, I'll mention that before we finish, but one of my favourite the funniest thing I've seen in any movie this year was in Thor Ragnarok when Banner is flying the Grandmaster spaceship and he's trying to figure out what um, what will turn the engines on or something and he accidentally turns on a fireworks display and a hologram of Jeff Goldblum playing his keyboard thing going, it's my birthday, <laughs> it's my birthday. It was just like such a weird idea and it's so really, really funny. And the second funniest thing I've seen was in... Too Funny to Fail, when some of the key figures from the Dana Carvey show are sat down to watch one of the uh, ads for home improvement that aired before their show and their reactions to realising just how mismatched they were with that show uh, is is fantastic, particularly Stephen Colbert, who is debilitated with laughter about it when he just kind of is overwhelmed by the sense of what an assault on middle America their show must have felt like. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's definitely, uh, it is absolutely worth seeing if it shows up somewhere. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places. You can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.